This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 215, The Scary Future. I am Hal Hammond, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. The unknown can be terrifying, and nothing says unknown like the future. This week we will cover how the mighty can fall hard, and in a remarkably short span of time, what genetic manipulation can do with regard to divine authority and human ego, whether a machine can write an essay better than I can, and the games people play in the parking lot while we're in the church house. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7 reads, And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus was the great success story for the work of the gospel in Asia. Acts 18 records how Paul visited the city briefly on his way back to Jerusalem after his second preaching tour. There's no indication he preached there. But Priscilla and Aquila, two of Paul's traveling and preaching companions, went with him from Corinth to Ephesus and stayed there, presumably in connection with their tent-making business. Acts is not the story of Aquila and Priscilla, so we lose track of them for a bit. But it appears they were instrumental in beginning the church there in Ephesus. At any rate, when we pick the story up again, the church is there. Priscilla and Aquila are there, and they are instructing Apollos in a more accurate understanding of the gospel. When Paul finally makes it back to Ephesus in Acts 19, the church is in full flower. In fact, verse 10 seems to give credit for the general spread of the gospel throughout Asia, including the other six churches, to the Ephesian brethren, and not Paul. Colossians is the only letter of Paul's to a church in Asia other than Ephesus, and he makes it clear in chapter 2, verse 1, he had not seen them or the saints in Laodicea in person. This all seems to support the idea that Paul did not establish the other churches in Asia. The Ephesians get the credit for that. Surely that's at least part of what Jesus means by their first love. The Ephesians loved the Lord. They loved the gospel. They loved to tell the story. But time has a way of changing our attitude. Even at the end of the third preaching tour, Paul had concerns. He told the elders in their brief meeting in Miletus that he anticipated savage wolves that would afflict the flock and that the problems would arise from among your own selves, Acts 20, verses 19 and 20. Could a rogue eldership be fouling the nest just a few months after Paul's three-year sojourn there? If so, that would explain why, just a few years later, Paul was instructing Timothy in his first epistle regarding the appointment of elders. Things had gone downhill very quickly, just as Paul had predicted. When John saw his revelation, likely decades after Paul's death, the church was still alive in Ephesus. 
But again, assuming Timothy was able to accomplish his mission, the fix did not take. The church, according to Jesus himself, had left its first love. Whether you choose to apply that idea specifically to love of the Lord, love of the brethren, love of evangelism, or some combination, the result is the same. The church was in dire straits. This is the only church of the seven that is threatened with the removal of the lampstand, which seems to signify connection to the Lord. A good past is fine. Standing against error, which they were still doing, is wonderful. But it is not the same thing as being true to the Lord. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that faith, hope, and love were what abided in the hearts and lives of Christians. And the greatest of these is love. If we have no love, perhaps it makes no difference whether we have faith and hope. I have known many, many churches over the years that had a long storied history of checking boxes, no instrument, no inappropriate money usage, no compromise on doctrinal matters, no moral permissiveness, and yet showed no spirit of love at all. They did not love their brethren enough to correct them in the spirit of gentleness, as Galatians 6.1 requires. They did not love their neighbors enough to make disciples of them and baptize them, as Jesus taught in Matthew 28.19. Often they did not seem even to love one another, as required in far too many passages to mention. Really, exactly how much of Jesus can be in the heart of one who does not love? It's easy to assume Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23 is talking about the so-called Christian who was awry on a matter of doctrine or morality. But couldn't the one whom Jesus never knew just as easily be the unloving Christian? Didn't Jesus say brotherly love is the defining characteristic of his disciples in John 13, 35? We are not called just to be paragons of doctrine and or morality. We are called to be like Jesus. The Ephesians weren't doing that, and they were on the brink of disaster. If your love has dwindled over the years, maybe it's time for you to back away from the cliff as well. This is what I've been reading. Next is a science fiction novel written by Michael Crichton, published in 2006. The book explores the consequences of genetic research and genetic patents on individuals and societies as a whole. The story is told through the perspectives of various characters, including researchers, lawyers, investors, and even animals that have been genetically modified. The novel raises various ethical and moral questions about the ownership and control of genetic material the implications of genetic research on privacy and personal autonomy, and the consequences of human intervention in the natural order. These themes might be challenging for individuals who believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, particularly those who view human beings as created in the image of God and who believe that God has given humans dominion over the earth and its creatures. For example, the book raises questions about the creation of life and the boundaries of human intervention in natural processes. In the Bible, God is the creator of all life, and humans are created in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The novel challenges this view by presenting a world in which humans can create new life forms through genetic manipulation. Some individuals might find this idea contradictory to their religious beliefs about the nature of life and the role of humans in its creation. Another philosophical difficulty that might arise for individuals who hold a literal interpretation of the Bible is the question of human ownership of genetic material. In the novel, various characters seek to patent and profit from genetic research and the creation of new life forms. 
Some individuals might view this as an infringement on God's ownership of all life in the natural world. Furthermore, the novel raises questions about the nature of humanity and the concept of human dignity. In the Bible, human beings are seen as unique and special creatures, created in God's image and imbued with inherent dignity and worth. The novel challenges this view by presenting a world in which humans can be genetically modified, patented, and owned, like any other commodity. Some individuals might view this as a violation of the sanctity of human life and dignity. In conclusion, Michael Crichton's novel Next raises various philosophical difficulties for individuals who hold a literal interpretation of the Bible, particularly with regards to the creation of life, the ownership of genetic material, and the nature of humanity. While the book does not directly address religious beliefs, its themes and ideas might challenge some readers' perspectives on the role of humans in the natural world and the boundaries of human intervention in the order of creation. This is what I've been hearing. I have a confession to make. I did not write the words for the previous segment. It was generated by a system called ChatGPT. If you haven't heard of ChatGPT yet, it's high time you did. ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence chatbot. It was issued as a prototype back in November 2022, and is quickly becoming world famous for its ability to communicate at a human level far more quickly and effectively than actual humans. For instance, I typed in the following prompt, quote, Explain the philosophical difficulties raised in Michael Crichton's novel, Next, for people who believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Cite scripture references to defend the case. Make sure to properly cite Michael Crichton as the author of Next, and include a synopsis of the book in less than 1,000 words. End quote. I should add, in the spirit of full disclosure, that ChatGPT also added the following paragraph as an introduction. Quote, as an AI language model, I do not have beliefs nor opinions. However, I can provide an overview of Michael Crichton's novel next and discuss some of the philosophical difficulties that might arise for individuals who believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. End quote. I wanted to preserve the surprise, so I cut that part out. If that makes me a cheater, I apologize. In any event, I got the text of the last segment in less than 30 seconds. Perfectly punctuated, syntactically correct, and logically sound, which is more than I can say for the first drafts of anything I write. ChatGPT and artificial intelligence in general brings up several concerns. Primary among them, for my purposes at least, is the soundness of the source material used to put the text together. In other words, I can't expect a machine to write like me if it doesn't think like me. To that end, I added this sentence to my previous prompt. Quote, Encourage Christians to hold to their faith and remain skeptical of scientific speculation that would make God less than he is, end quote. If that sounds like a trap, that's because it was. The response I got from ChatGPT was pretty much the same as before with the addition of the following, quote, The concept of evolution is also addressed in the Bible, which could be seen as contradictory to the creation account in Genesis. According to the Bible, God created the world and all the living things in it in six days, Genesis 1. However, the theory of evolution suggests that living things evolved over millions of years through natural selection and random mutation. It's important to note, however, that there are different interpretations of the creation account in Genesis, and not all Christians believe in a literal interpretation. 
Some may see the story as a metaphor or allegory rather than a historical or scientific account. While it is important to remain skeptical of scientific speculation that would make God less than he is, it is also important to engage in critical thinking and consider different perspectives. Christians should seek to understand and evaluate scientific advances in light of their faith and biblical teachings. This may involve questioning certain scientific assumptions or claims, but it should not involve rejecting science outright or ignoring evidence that contradicts one's beliefs. Ultimately, Christians can hold to their faith while also recognizing the complexity and mystery of God's creation. As the Apostle Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. End quote. I found this a bit more problematic. First of all, I don't think that's a proper application of 1 Corinthians 13, 12, but a lot of my preaching brethren would disagree with me on that, so I'll let that go. The bigger issue is, ChatGPT refused to take a hardline position on the nature of the six-day creation, or the inerrancy of the Bible in general. It insisted that the reader not assume that a scientific concept is flawed because it seems to contradict the Bible, and that's fine. But it did not insist that faith should not be abandoned because of something that presents itself as scientific fact. The prompt I wrote clearly was from a creationist viewpoint. The response I received clearly was not. I have no issue with a response per se. However, I can easily see that someone would be far more likely to fall over to the side of the evolutionist than the side of the creationist if this were taken as an unbiased, objective perspective on the question. For the record, and these are my actual words, I take the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 very literally. And as a result, I have confidence that animals and plants will continue to reproduce after their kind as long as the earth survives. But after their kind is a vague concept. Clearly, some level of mutation can be encouraged. Humans have been doing that for hundreds of years. And with modern advancements in genetics, that is only going to increase. Will God allow the blending of completely different animal types, or even the blending of animals and humans? Only time will tell. We are already transplanting valves from pigs into human heart patients. Is it impossible to envision making animal DNA look more like human DNA, or vice versa? Anyway, to sum up my thoughts on ChatGPT, I suppose you should look at material generated by AI in the same way that you do material written by mere mortals. Biases exist. Presuppositions are baked into the program. That's not necessarily an evil thing or even a bad thing. You should always be challenging your thought processes. If you can maintain command and control, you can use it and find it to be a blessing. Just remember, AI is made by humans. It is not made by God. And it certainly is not God. To paraphrase Romans 3, 4, let God be found true and every computer program a liar. This is what I've been playing. I mentioned augmented reality in brief last week. If you missed it, augmented reality is basically an overlay, an extra layer of tangible reality at the forefront of your consciousness that does not make you blind to the things that actually exist in space and time. In other words, you aren't wearing heavy goggles like with virtual reality. You're seeing the real world, but just with some extra stuff thrown in. Probably the example of augmented reality that would be easiest to understand is Pokemon Go. I haven't heard about Pokemon Go in a minute, although it seems to still be out there. 
Apparently something called Pokemon Go Fest 2023 is coming in August to a city near you, and millions of Pokemon Go players from around the world are expected to participate. I guess I'm not on the mailing list. Anyway, Pokemon Go players go all over creation, literally, to find little critters called Pokemon. That's the singular form and the plural, in case you're wondering. When you find one, you use your smartphone to throw Pokeballs at them and capture them. You want to get as many different Pokemon as possible. It's like stamp collecting, I guess, except the albums all fit in your pocket. I found an article written in Indonesian, at least it said it was Indonesian, like I would know, that apparently praised Pokemon Go for encouraging players to frequent religious facilities and gatherings, national parks, art museums, and various other locations not typically associated with the video gaming demographic. The thinking seems to be that exposing a younger crowd to different experiences, especially thought-provoking ones, is a noble goal, and that players are now better, more rounded people as a result. That's one angle, I guess. I remember looking at it a bit differently back in the heyday of the craze. We had a Pokemon in the church parking lot a few years ago when I was working in Pensacola, Florida. I don't remember anyone coming through the door and saying, Hey, while I'm here, could you tell me about Jesus Christ? Yes, they came to church, at least to our property. Like they found their way to Auschwitz and Arlington National Cemetery and Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. Yes, those were famous Pokemon Go locations. But then they just left to look for more little imaginary creatures to put in their imaginary zoos. No noticeable contemplation, but plenty of disruption of the contemplation of others. I've started featuring more games here that I have not personally played, and Pokemon Go is certainly one of those. I have my reasons, some of which you can probably infer from my comments so far. But at a fundamental level, I'm not sure augmented reality is my kind of thing. If it can show surgeons the best place to cut, or provide easy instructions for auto mechanics, or even help me find my car keys and the sofa cushions, I suppose that's nice. But there's something disturbing about just pushing a button and changing the world to suit your immediate preferences. Reality is inconvenient sometimes, awkward, challenging, even painful. The inadequacies we face are intended to get us to improve the world. Simply glossing over it is like covering a crack in the wall with a coat of paint. The problem we don't see and don't want to see often is the problem we very much need to see. I don't doubt that graveyards are more fun with little Japanese cartoons dancing around. But fun isn't the point at graveyards. Contemplating our own mortality is, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.2. And even if you choose to blind yourself to the ugliness of the world, that gives you no right to make a mockery of the choices of others. I'm going to say something here that will make you think I've been abducted by aliens, but I promise you it's still me. Put the game away. You can come back to it later if you like, I promise. But for now, put it away. Look at the actual world. Find someone in pain and render aid. Do something difficult and learn a lesson from it. Consider the impact you're actually having on actual people. Or just stop and take in the world. Jesus is calling you to be a light to help sinful people find their way. It would be a shame if all you helped them find was the least real thing in the world. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.